This is Mike Levitt, a co-founder of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to the Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. The ACLC is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating industry readiness for success in value. With its competency-based framework for health value, the ACLC is working with healthcare organizations all over the country to create the workforce of tomorrow. Come join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to Value listeners, you're about to hear from Dr. Deborah Pat, one of the nation's leading oncologists, breast cancer specialists, oncology researcher. She's also uh, an executive. She's from Texas Oncology. Outside of her clinical role, she's the executive vice president of public policy, payer relations, and strategic initiatives at Texas O. Texas Oncology is a practice with 210 sites of service, 490 doctors, and they serve half of cancer patients in the entire state of Texas, which is 60,000 patients a year. She's an expert in healthcare policy. She's testified before Congress to protect access to care for Medicare beneficiaries. Her research and clinical decision support, predictive analytics, telemedicine, and tools for patient symptom management and quality improvement have been nationally recognized. I mean, I could go on and on. She's done so much work in the, the field of oncology. Um, she's also the clinical professor at Dell Medical School at the University of Texas in Austin. She's an advocate for effective cancer policy and an advocate for value-based oncology care. She serves outside of her leadership role in the practice and many prominent associations in the cancer community. She's also the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Clinical Cancer Informatics, and she's the executive committee and board director for the Community Oncology Alliance. Daniel, I, I just don't know what else to say about Dr. Pat. After the interview we just had with her, I, I just feel like there's a, such an important role that value-based care plays in oncology. And I think Dr. Pat was just so articulate and really explaining this to our listeners, understanding how oncology can be better positioned to improve patient outcomes and clinical quality. Yeah, Eric, I have to agree. Our conversation with Dr. Pat was rich and in-depth, and we covered things like the oncology care model, value-based payment, the, the new radiation oncology model, interdisciplinary team care technology, advanced care planning, you know, integration of, of coordinated care teams. So many wonderful topics and great insights from Dr. Pat. And I just think our listeners are going to really have a, a better appreciation for the value of oncology and value-based care. For you listeners out there, anything you want to know about value-based oncology care, you're going to hear it in this episode. I mean, even discussing advanced care planning and biosimilars and health equity and, you know, the new APMs, as Daniel mentioned. So without further ado, we could not be more excited to present Dr. Pat to you. So let's go ahead and hear from Dr. Deborah Pat as she joins us this week in the Race to Value. Dr. Pat, welcome to the Race to Value. It's so great to have you. I, I couldn't be more excited to have this discussion on value-based oncology care. And as one of the leading physicians, researchers, and executives in the oncology space, I just feel like I'm going to learn so much. So I'm, I'm very grateful to have you on our show today. Thanks, Eric, for having me. I'm excited to be here. 
Well, Dr. Pat, here on the Race to Value podcast, we are evangelists for value-based care transformation in order to improve quality and lower cost in our system. And obviously, we know all these financial stats when it comes to the overall healthcare system. It's 18% of our GDP, $3 trillion in spend, about 11000 per capita cost. But it's really frightening to think about how this puts us on an unsustainable financial trajectory. And as those numbers are projected to increase, every sector of healthcare is under scrutiny on how to control spending while maintaining or improving quality. And the cost of cancer care, which includes medical services and drugs, continues to increase at a pretty alarming rate. Looking at the data set on national costs from a couple of years ago, I think in 2015, national costs for cancer for were about $190 billion. And just five years later, in 2020, the cost ballooned to $209 billion. And that was a 10% increase. And I know that's primarily attributed to the aging and the growth of the U.S. population. And I wanted to ask you about this as we start our conversation, Dr. Pat, in your role as a medical oncologist and active leader and breast cancer research, you've become nationally known for your views on value-based oncology care. Can you provide for our listeners your perspective on why the industry needs to transition from volume to value? And how is it better for the industry in terms of savings potential, better for patients in terms of patient outcomes and experience, and ultimately better for physicians and their care teams in terms of improved collaboration? Is this triple aim that we hear about Is that really possible when it comes to value-based oncology care? Thanks for your question, Eric. I will say the short answer is yes. I would say that there are places where the triple aim is very attainable. We want a better patient experience, lower costs, and improved population health. And it's really important that industry transition from volume to value but I would say that we need to anchor our expectations a little differently. I think that if you if you look at the U.S. spend on healthcare, and as you mentioned, Eric, the age distribution of the population shifting, it would be unreasonable to think that healthcare costs would go down while our population is aging, because there's more individuals to treat with advanced disease. So if you look at total net costs for the country, for example, when the Medicare population is growing substantially, it would be unrealistic, I think, to think that Medicare spend would decrease during that time interval because there are two active changes occurring. One, the age distribution and individuals in that population is growing. And also innovative treatments are expanding, which disrupts and changes cancer care in wonderful ways. Because in the last 15 years, when we have seen costs increase, we've also seen tremendous innovation in cancer care, where for many patients, cancer becomes a chronic disease. So I would offer to you, Eric, to think about some of our changes, particularly around drug spend, which is a big bullet as more like a mortgage than rent. Because if you look at it as a cost that you incur in perpetuity as an investment in patient care, I think it's hard to sort of swallow the the challenge of increased costs. If you, however, look at it as a mortgage, an investment in what predominantly will be generic drugs in the near term to offer to Americans and to the world, I think you would look at it differently, but it's more complex than just drugs. And the drug piece is further complex because we do need to decrease the cost for patients. We know that cancer care, for example, can be bankrupting to patients. There shouldn't be any patients that don't have access to cancer care. When when patient out-of-pocket costs increase, more patients don't have access. And even patients that do have access will be less compliant with treatment because of the out-of-pocket cost burden. So there are many costs to society. The other piece is with this tremendous paradigm shift in cancer care, from it going to an acute illness to more of a chronic disease akin to hypertension or diabetes, is as patients live longer, they continue to contribute to society, interact with their families. And you can't discount the value of living longer and being active not just on treatment, but really living your life as you would otherwise live it to society, that there's a tremendous benefit there. And as you look at different economic outcomes of therapies, frequently those 
intangible values are not attributed well to the benefits of a particular therapeutic intervention. So as you look at drug costs, I would, I would offer to you and to Daniel to think about that and anchor your expectations differently. Again, there's a, a book by Peter Kolchinsky I recently read called The Great American Drug Deal that sort of offers this argument to think about our investment in drug spend more as a mortgage than rent. And I think it makes a lot of sense. We have to remember 90% of the drugs out there are generic. Again, that's not to be a drug apologist. We do need to reform drug pricing. I think there are strategies to do that that continue to be value-based and foster innovation. But the piece, Eric, is much bigger than just drug pricing. There are many investments in value that we need to see in investing in how we care for patients, especially in cancer care, where therapy can become toxic, where symptoms need to be managed, where treatments have become complex, and there's a lot of information asymmetry that exists between doctors and patients. And I will say that I have seen those improve tremendously with an interest in value-based care. So I can say Texas Oncology, which has a mission of bringing the highest quality of cancer care close to home, has invested tens of millions of dollars in these initiatives to try to make sure patients are better navigated, to make sure symptoms are addressed more rapidly, to try to keep patients out of the hospital, to try to have appropriate conversations with patients as as they have advanced disease, and to try to reduce the information asymmetry between doctors and patients. And I think all of those things enhance the value of cancer care. Dr. Pat, what a great overview. We're going to dive into a lot of these things that you've brought up. And I'd like to start with talking about as oncology practices transition to value-based care, they're challenged to take on more holistic responsibility for their patient. Fortunately, there are many examples of practices participating in CMS's oncology care model that have made impactful workflow changes to achieve cost and quality outcomes. The oncology care model or OCM was the first cancer specific alternative payment model for Medicare patients, as well as Medicare's first APM for outpatient specialty medicine. And the model allows for bundle payments in oncology care that covers six month episodes of care indexed to the initial chemotherapy. And despite several practices having succeeded in the OCM, many have not. We know that of the original 192 original practices in 2016 that started in the program, only 126 remain. And at this point, it can certainly be said that the overall results of the APM have been quite underwhelming. Since the OCM was originally implemented in July 2016, the program has led to 155 million net loss to Medicare, largely due to the model's complexity. The OCM was originally supposed to expire this summer and be replaced by the Oncology Care First model. However, in light of the COVID-19 pandemic, the date was pushed back by a year. And this might be a good thing, so CMMI can apply lessons learned when launching the OCF. Despite the lack of savings to date, could we still consider the OCM a success in that it challenged oncology practices that are transitioning to take on more holistic responsibility for their patient? And can you provide examples for how OCM has led to impactful workflow changes that lead to long-term cost and quality improvements? And finally, how is the Oncology Care First APM that replaces OCM next year different? And what should oncology practices expect? It's a great question, Daniel. And I will say that we at Texas Oncology, we have enthusiastically participated in the Oncology Care model I do think it has been a tremendous success because I think that you can't just look at total cost of Medicare. You have to look at value. So remember value is outcomes over costs. And we have to look at patient outcomes and how they have changed over time. I can tell you as a practitioner and as a leader in a large practice that's been managing this model change, it's led to tremendous infrastructure investments in how we think about care delivery and tremendous workflow changes in how patients go through their journey with cancer at a critical time because patients are needing different things because of the innovation in cancer care that has become so much more complex. Some examples of ways in which we have invested in infrastructure change. Most of our patients now, as opposed to pre-OCM, that went through a chemotherapy teaching class with a group of other patients that was taught by a nurse that talked about generic symptoms and symptom control related to treatment. Now 
with immunotherapy and 30% of our therapies being orals, you can imagine that guidance around treatment is highly variable from patient to patient. And in the OCM, we have our patients go through an individualized treatment care and coordination plan, usually for an hour with a caregiver and a clinician. So this is really individualized to the patient so they can understand better their newly more complex treatment plan and also understand the symptoms they may incur and how to manage symptoms. That's been incredible. We also have invested in nurse navigators. So patients are individually navigated. That's improved the patient journey tremendously because otherwise it, it was hard for patients to do this on their own. And now they have a lot more help in going through chronic care. We have 24 seven access to our electronic health record. It's not a specification of the model, but we have also invested in just-in-time mechanisms of symptom control. We've implemented a nursing triage system that has decreased our time to patient responses and symptom control with the goal of improving patient symptom management and also decreasing ER visits and hospitalizations. We've also implemented an electronic patient-reported outcomes instrument for patients on new treatment just this last year, which has been incredible. And I'll talk about again, probably a little bit later. And we've increased our utilization of biosimilars more systematically. So from the launch of biosimilars, where a biosimilar product is available, my own practice, and, and I know it's true of other community oncology practices, that uh, we are over 90% utilization of biosimilars when there was a biosimilar available. So I will say these are all tremendous changes in how we think about care delivery. Also, OCM had some particular specifications, depression screening, discussion of advanced directives that are really important for cancer care. And while they were never not addressed, I would say that they were addressed variably between practitioners. And so participation in the model, especially for big practices like Texas Oncology that has 210 sites of service, has made us think about how to systematically ensure that there is infrastructure in place so patients can get what they need. And in, in my opinion, this leads to diminished information asymmetry between doctors and patients. This is really critical. Cancer care is complex. We're using some chemotherapies, some targeted therapies, maybe some oral therapies, maybe immunotherapies. Patients need to understand what they are getting and how to manage their side effects in order for them to maintain compliance and also continue to benefit from these drugs. Another infrastructure change that we invested in that has been a change with OCM is that every patient now sees a financial counselor and we have a repertoire of resources that we engage with to try to understand how we can help patients financially manage their journey of cancer care. This is incredibly important and it's our expectation for every patient, not just our patients in OCM, and this has helped a lot in patients manage the financial burden of, of cancer care and also understand how to better access resources that they may have available to them and that we may have available to us. So I think all of these are tremendous care enhancements. To go further, Texas Oncology has also used what we've learned from OCM to think about value-based care models with other commercial payers. And so we have multiple commercial payer value-based care contracts that are sort of anchored in the same way in how we think about transitioning care delivery. So I will say that I think OCM has been an investment that's worth it. I think we've learned a lot about cancer care. I'm really excited about the transition to value that we've seen with OCM. I do have some concerns about there being a gap between OCM and OCF, recognizing that there may be some time there and we've made all these infrastructure investments and no one wants to go back. We all think this is better care for patients. So I, I am a little bit concerned about that, but obviously it's a time of tremendous transition during the COVID-19 pandemic. Our practices have never been under more duress than during the COVID-19 pandemic, where for most of us, we've had to implement 30 different CDC protocols, frequently have not had caregivers in our office. And obviously patients who have cancer have a heightened amount of anxiety and depression as they navigate this difficult time. But I do look forward to OCF and I do hope to see some changes. Building on the things that we've learned from OCM, I would like to see symptom management play a greater role in OCF. I know that many practices 
are working with electronic patient reported outcomes instruments. Texas Oncology has launched the Health Tracker application, which is an electronic patient reported outcomes instrument based on the 14 categorical symptoms in the PRO CTCAE from the National Cancer Institute, which is a common symptom assessment in cancer. And we've used that so patients can just in time use SMS and an application to characterize their symptoms with the care team that's sent just in time to the care team for symptom mitigation. I think these kinds of investments in digital healthcare to augment the patient experience are just the kind of changes that we need to really transition more from volume to value. And I'm excited about it. I believe that OCF is interested in incorporating changes like this just-in-time symptom management because it really is in alignment with their goals of decreasing hospitalizations and ER visits among patients and improving the patient journey. Well, Dr. Pat, I wanted to ask you about another alternative payment model impacting oncology right now, and that is the controversial radiation oncology model. The RO model is designed to counter three flaws in reimbursement for radiation therapy, which contribute to high cost. I mean, first, you have radiation therapy services that are reimbursed differently, respective to the site at which they're furnished. Under the current reimbursement methodology, freestanding radiation treatment centers, for example, are reimbursed at a lower rate, but provide a greater number of treatments and more expensive therapies. Second, RT providers are reimbursed for every fraction of treatment, regardless of the total dose, meaning the same dose of radiation would receive greater reimbursement if it were split into more fractions. And then lastly, I know CMS has identified difficulties in the coding and billing for radiation therapy, you know, due to the treatment's high volume and use of emergent technology resulting in potentially inappropriate payment rates. And the RO is really seeking to correct these payment inefficiencies by providing site-neutral episodic payments for all RT services provided to a beneficiary for a 90-day period. But what really makes the upcoming RO model so controversial is that it's mandatory. And to many, that violates the spirit of other APMs currently overseen by CMMI. And uh, the current projections are that the mandatory radiation oncology model could create reimbursement cuts of $160 million over five years. And that's on top of the $140 million in cuts due to several policy changes in the 2022 Medicare physician fee schedule. So I wanted to just ask you, since many in the oncology community have vocalized their opposition to the mandatory RO model. Can you provide some perspective on this new APM and, and maybe how it's going to support the transition to value-based oncology care? Absolutely. Uh, thanks, Eric, for your question. So I will say first and foremost, I do believe that radiation oncology is ripe for value-based care transitions. I think that is useful, but I think that the currently proposed radiation oncology care model has several challenges that are incredibly difficult and especially difficult now. To the first point that you made, I think that it being mandatory is challenging. You will hear from CMMI that they believe that mandatory is important because in the OCM, they saw that it was voluntary and maybe practices that were ripe to change were able to manage the change and volunteered for the model and other practices were not. So they felt like it was important to have a mandatory model. I think that is a real problem. And I would say that I think that a, a voluntary model does help all practices transition as we all learn from each other. I would say particularly in community oncology, where I think we all very much work together and are nimble and change quite a bit given various changes. I think a voluntary model is incredibly important. These kinds of rigid mandatory models are challenging because sometimes patients need a higher number of fractionations or they need specialized treatment. And I will say that these exceptions are incredibly important because they do things like spare toxicity to critical organs. For example, if I have a patient with a left-sided upper inner quadrant, locally advanced breast cancer, where she has a lot of lymphadenopathy in her internal mammary chain. It, it lies right next to the heart. And so in this patient with a locally advanced breast cancer that's directly next to the heart, 
making sure that they have appropriate treatment to give the highest dose possible to control the cancer and also spare the heart and lungs becomes critical. And this sometimes requires uh, more sophisticated and technical radiation oncology modalities like IMRT, for example. When you require that kind of more sophisticated treatment, that poses a risk in, in models like the radiation oncology model. And so while that's not the average patient, you know, among Medicare beneficiaries, they're older patients on average. Some of them have cardiac disease. If they require special treatment, it poses a financial risk to the organization. So I think that voluntary is really important. I think that there need to be mechanisms to provide for complex treatments when it's necessary. And I think timing is critical. Again, as I mentioned before, the COVID-19 pandemic has put most cancer practices under a tremendous amount of duress. The caregiver support has been altered because for a long time, most caregivers weren't permitted in cancer clinics. That means patients learned about their cancer alone. They learned about their treatment alone. It's very challenging. Patients have been more isolated during the COVID pandemic because of risk. So there's been heightened anxiety and depression. Many patients have abandoned treatment simply because it's been difficult. In our clinics, trying to manage these expectations and new changes with patients have been under incredible stress as we try to manage this increasing work with a limited workforce. Nationally, there is a shortage of nurses, as I'm sure you're aware of, in addition to other clinical and administrative staff that have posed additional burdens on cancer practices. So I would say, I think that a value-based care transitioning in radiation oncology is really important. I think CMMI should work closely with ASTRO and ACRO as they think about how to manage voluntary models for radiation oncology alternative payment. And I think that we need to wait for oncology practices to recover from the COVID pandemic before we initiate new change in order for them to be sustainable. You know, as we talk about value-based cancer care, Daniel and Eric, we have to remember that actually community oncology practices overwhelmingly are the lowest cost and highest value site of service where patients can receive cancer care. For infusional chemotherapy on average, it's about a third of hospital outpatient departments. And so if you stress our clinics so tremendously, where you have markets where community oncology clinics close and align with the hospital system, what you'll see is the cost tremendously increase over time because of that side of service shift. So it may be the same clinic with the same doctors and the same staff, but aligning with the hospital outpatient department will cause the costs to go up. And that's true for Medicare and for commercial payers. So I think that we need to make sure that we nurture and support community oncology practices and implement a radiation oncology alternative payment model pilot that is voluntary and in collaboration with ASTRO and ACRO at the right time. Dr. Pat, I'd love to ask you about the benefits of care coordination and care navigation in treating the whole patient. The leading oncology practices in the country seem to be integrating nutritionists, psychologists, social workers, and palliative care doctors into their care model to deliver higher value care. Interdisciplinary team collaboration is showing that it can improve communication and care outcomes, and it also improves health literacy in that patients can better obtain, process, and understand health information and services and enable sound health decision-making. Suboptimal health literacy is an independent risk factor for poor health outcomes, including increased risk of hospitalization. Cancer patients with poor health literacy may have misconceptions about their disease and ineffective communication with their health professionals, which will lead to necessary interventions and undertreatment or poor adherence to their treatment plans. Can you discuss the importance of interdisciplinary team-based care and how it supports reduced hospitalizations, reduced ED visits, increased adherence to the treatment plan, and better patient experience? Also, how are oncology groups able to leverage patient engagement technologies like telehealth to better communicate with patients and improve health literacy? These are great questions, Dan, and I'll address them a couple of different ways. First of all, I will say that oncology care is a team sport and patients benefit from that. Using 
other interdisciplinary services like nutrition, psychology, social work, palliative care, and really thinking about improving the health literacy of patients through many different mechanisms is critical to cancer care. Um, we've thought about this a lot as a practice and are piloting multiple models to do this. So it, Texas Oncology is a large practice. We do have palliative care physicians within the practice that help to support cancer care. This is really important, but as a large practice with 210 sites of service, there are some sites, particularly in rural areas that can't support a palliative care physician. So how do we do this better? One of the silver linings of the COVID pandemic has been the use of telehealth. And I'll say Texas Oncology, we've been rapid adopters of telehealth. It's been a tremendous service to our patients. And so we have really evolved our telehealth platform to think about virtual care delivery in many different mechanisms. And one of them is that we have a virtual palliative care pilot to some of our rural locations to try to provide palliative care services via telemedicine to those practices that would otherwise not be able to sustain a palliative care doctor independently. So I think actually this has been one of the silver linings of the pandemic is that it's disrupted the traditional models about how we think about care delivery and allowed us to think out of the box about how we support patients. So that's true for palliative care. It's also true for social work. We do have many social workers in our practice. And as you may not realize to have a social worker and palliative care, nutrition, and, and psychology services in a community oncology practice where they are only a cost center, meaning that we generally don't bill enough if we bill at all for their services to pay for the individual that we employ. We've had to think about how can we more efficiently deliver those kinds of services to patients because we do believe they're high value and really important for cancer patients. So we have a director for social work and palliative care that's been incredibly important and have hired additional social workers, but also have pilots that are using social workers to staff some of our rural areas that couldn't have a social worker on their own. So that's been incredibly value add. And some of our social workers are doing only counseling for patients. In addition, as we launched telemedicine in March of 2020 across the practice, our social workers quickly adopted virtual support groups. And that's been an incredible forum for patients to allow them to continue to have a community when they were otherwise advised to have social isolation. So we've had virtual care groups. And the last I checked, which has been a couple of months now, every single one of them is completely full to their pre-specified number. So they've been incredibly popular with the patients they serve. We've had them in English and in Spanish. So it's been really value add to our patients. We've also increased counseling services and we've hired a nutritionist and are now implementing a plan to allow nutrition visits to all of our patients, though this is a work in progress. We're probably six months from go live for that, but we do believe it's an important part of survivorship. So I'll say that we've made categorical investments in these different collaborative and interdisciplinary services. And I think that that's really important, even though it's a cost for practices. Bringing it all together, I'll say that the second important piece of this is communication between interdisciplinary providers. And so having forums to communicate between interdisciplinary providers is critical for patients. All of us at Texas Oncology have a huddle that we participate in at least once a week. Some of us do it every day. I myself have clinic two days a week, so I do this once a week with my team. So this is about 15 people that sit and meet for more than an hour every week where we run the list of all new patients and all patients that have issues that require addressing. Sometimes that's toxicities, sometimes that's life stressors, sometimes it's pending insurance approval. And that way we can begin to address each challenge. And that is really a care team. Again, oncology care is a team sport. That's me as the doctor, the team leader, my nurse navigator, my advanced practice providers, our administrative leader for the practice, our prior authorization specialist, our social worker, our scheduler, my medical assistant, all of us join in because some of us may hear something different. For example, yesterday we were talking about a patient that has recently come in who's in her forties and we're in Texas where many people don't have insurance. She has an inflammatory breast cancer and she's uninsured. 
and she needs treatment and she only speaks Spanish. So her care is complex. We have to somehow provide care for her, even though she doesn't qualify for Medicaid, she doesn't qualify for Medicare. She doesn't qualify for the MAP program, which is our county program in Travis County because she lives in Williamson County. She speaks Spanish. So there are all these barriers to her getting care that are different than other patients. And so different parts of my team understood different pieces of her story that helped us think about how we solve for her care. And so that's really critical. So bringing it all together, I think that interdisciplinary meetings is critical. We do this within my own team and and across teams in Texas oncology. So I think the huddle is really important, but also among various subspecialists, we meet regularly. So we've launched virtual tumor boards for most of our disease types that meet regularly where we present new cases. I would say that always interdisciplinary and multidisciplinary treatment planning is important for patient care, but particularly during the COVID pandemic where we've had to make some pivots, how to optimize those pivots for patients when the hospital may be full and they may not be able to have timely surgery has been really important. As you may realize during this time in April of 2020, and again, just this last month, some of the local hospitals in Texas and other states have gone through this also, have really had to delay surgeries because of the capacity issues in the hospital is they've had an increasing burden due to the COVID-19 pandemic and increased hospitalizations. So we've been able to safely plan delays in surgical treatment by managing patients in a multidisciplinary fashion. So multidisciplinary care is always important, but particularly during the COVID pandemic. So in my mind, how we think about supporting patients with interdisciplinary and multidisciplinary teams has been really increased during the pandemic with these new tools that we have. The last piece that I'll want to add to how we think about patient health literacy is that this is a growing problem in cancer care where we have the growing benefit of more complicated treatments where patients benefit tremendously. What this means is that patients need to have a heightened awareness of how to manage toxicity and how to navigate their journey optimally. So we've really thought about this quite a bit. Again, as as I mentioned before, we have a treatment care and coordination visit with every patient prior to the initiation of a new therapy. So we can anchor their expectations of what symptoms they could incur and how to mitigate problematic symptoms or how to manage their symptoms optimally. In addition to that, we provide a treatment care plan for every patient. Now this was pre-specified for the oncology care model, but we actually do it for every patient where they get a paper printout of exactly what medicines they're going to receive, what their benefit might be, what alternatives might be, and what their future might be with with regards to a particular treatment. While I think all doctors do this to some level, it's been highly variable. And so we've tried to make the process more systematic to provide a consistent level of education to patients. Lastly, we are upgrading our patient portal that will go live next month to allow additional health literacy to be disseminated to patients and their caregivers through an augmented portal, which is another way digital healthcare can improve care delivery. Dr. Pad, I wanted to ask you about uh, something you mentioned earlier about this financial toxicity in cancer care. And you know, as we discussed the importance of health literacy, it seems like patients need to be financially literate as well when seeking cancer treatment. We all know the number one cause of personal bankruptcy is health care, and it's such an unfortunate scenario. And I, I know that patients, when they seek cancer treatment, sometimes they, they may have out-of-pocket expenses of 20 to 30%. And when you look at the financial burden on an individual basis, that could be upwards of 20 to 30,000 per year, which is half of the average annual household income in the United States. And many patients, it's been estimated 10 to 20% may decide not to take the treatment or may compromise significantly on the treatment plan. And these instances of financial toxicity shows that patients have price sensitivity and they may forego treatment even for the most effective life-saving drugs with something just as little as a $50 monthly copay. And, you know, an example I heard about was imatinib, which is the treatment for chronic myelogenous leukemia that allows for a high survival rate 10 years after diagnosis, but it has a 70% 
non-adherence rate. So Dr. Pat, you mentioned this earlier. I'd, I'd love to learn a little bit more about your perspective on how oncology practices can better serve patients with financial counseling services and how does that fit into the movement to value-based oncology care and ultimately will that mitigate some of the financial risks that patients experience in the current fee-for-service model? It's a really important question, Eric. I will say that we need to decrease the out-of-pocket burden that patients experience from cancer care. There's no question. So as a practice, we are helping to participate in that and that every patient who initiates a new treatment meets with a financial counselor. This, I think, serves several purposes. One, it allows patients to understand their benefits if they have insurance from their insurance product and what their out-of-pocket burden will be. It also allows us to better understand how we can help to augment a patient support as sometimes there may be programs to help patients support their journey and decrease their out-of-pocket financial burdens. Sometimes they may qualify for programs that help them. Sometimes they need certain documentation or engagement with their health plan or employer in order to optimally support their cancer journey. So meeting with a financial counselor for every patient is really important and I think helps to navigate some of these uh, environments better. The other piece is that we really need to have reform in how we think about out-of-pocket costs for patients. We need to diminish out-of-pocket costs for patients because Eric, to your point with imatinib mesylate or the treatment Gleevec for uh, chronic myeloid leukemia, it's been studied that increased costs lead to medication non-adherence, non-compliance, and then lack of efficacy because you're not compliant with a therapeutic strategy which would lead to poor patient outcomes. We don't want that. We want patients to be able to get their cancer care. We want them to be able to benefit from their cancer care and live long. So this is a challenge. And I think that this requires reform. I'll say, in my opinion, I think that there needs to be reform in some of the insurance products that we're seeing that are short-term limited insurance products or catastrophic care only. It's hard to know exactly what you're getting with insurance products. And sometimes patients might opt for an insurance product that essentially gives them no coverage. Then the natural consequence is that their out-of-pocket costs are very high and it's essentially impossible for them to receive care. So what those products end up providing is really catastrophic coverage. And so we need to have, I think, reform to make sure that patients are able to get insurance products that provide them meaningful coverage for cancer care. So that means deductibles that are reasonable and diminishing participation in short-term limited products. I also think that there needs to be reform in Medicare to try to diminish out-of-pocket costs for patients. You do see reform proposals in Congress and out-of-Senate finance. I will say I think it's complex, but uh, I think the Part D program does require reform. I think that will be more costly for the country, but you need to be able to diminish costs so patients can get the care they need. I have personally experienced patients tell me that they are not eligible for patient assistance and they will choose not to have a more effective therapy that could triple their progression-free survival because it's too costly. I'm thinking of one woman in particular who is um, a psychologist. So she's employed and on Medicare, but chose to have a less effective treatment that was non-toxic because the out-of-pocket costs were high and she worried about the financial burden on her family. So that happens. Patient out-of-pocket costs are a barrier to appropriate cancer care, and they need to be a priority for the government as we think about policies to support them. And I do think that's going to require policy change. Dr. Pat, another change that many oncology groups who are participating in value-based care models are working on is standardizing cancer care with pathways adopted from the National Comprehensive Care Network, or NCCN. Oncology pathways are a powerful way to support a multidisciplinary approach to care and incorporate decision support for medical oncology, radiation oncology, surgical oncology, palliative care, and so on, including clinical trials. At Texas Oncology, I understand you've had really outstanding results with level one pathways leading to significant reductions in chemotherapy and medical oncology costs with total savings of around 10,000 per patient. Can you speak to how evidence-based decision support and high quality clinical pathways enable oncologists to decrease unwarranted care variation? And how do pathways help standardize referral points to radiation or surgery? 
support data sharing across treatment modalities, and provide visibility into treatment decisions made by the rest of the care team? It's a great question, Dan. I think that pathways are really important. I think the MCCN has done a great job of providing guidance around their clinical guidelines. That's different than our level one pathways, which are a collaboration between MCCN and the U.S. Oncology Network. But our evidence-based level one pathways or value pathways sit as a clinical decision support tool within our health record. So if you can imagine, whenever I see a new patient, I enter in categorical information about stage and histopathologic characteristics, patient characteristics. Those you can imagine populate nodes on a decision tree of care delivery, then to provide our health record takes these on a fire platform. And then when we write for chemotherapy, it's a nudge to put evidence-based therapies at the top of the list for selection. I think this nudge is really important because in general, patients are best treated with evidence-based care when we have a lot of evidence to support it. Oncology is a very evidence-based medical specialty. And in general, this is in the best interest of patients. It also reduces errors and makes it easier for doctors to make evidence-based choices. We have studied implementation of our value pathways, the FIRE platform, clinical decision support nudge. And we know that across the network and in practices where we've implemented this electronic clinical decision support tool, that pathway compliance is higher per doctor and per practice. And we think that that's beneficial for patients. But I do think that it's important to recognize that this is not a mandate. So back to sort of voluntary versus mandatory, what this is, is a nudge. So a development of a choice architecture to facilitate evidence-based decision-making. So it's really architecture. If I can provide an analogy, um, there's a book called Nudge by Cass Sunstein and Richard Thaler that sort of describes this phenomenon. I think it's critical in healthcare because physicians are autonomous creatures. But if I can provide an analogy, when I read the book, which talks about how you can provide choice architecture to facilitate good decisions, I immediately stocked my refrigerator at the eye level of my children with cut celery, carrots, and fruit (laughs) as optimal choices for them to take. So think of that similarly. If I want my doctors to select evidence-based choices in general, I'm going to prioritize those choices. So how will I do that? I'm going to put them at the top of the list. If I could colorize them, I'm going to make that color green instead of orange, yellow, or red. And I'm going to ease the process for them to go through and initiate treatment. I'm going to provide it with complementary anti-medic protocols that are evidence-based, and I'm going to make it easy for them to prescribe this therapy. I'm not going to tell them that they can't do something else, but if they want to do something else that's not in those prioritized buckets, they have to provide clinical evidence and go through a separate approval process kind of like my kids could eat ice cream if they want to or something else, but there needs to be a good reason for it. And they have to ask permission before they do it. So this kind of nudge of clinical decision support is a way to allow doctors to continue to make autonomous decisions. However, we're facilitating evidence-based decisions for patients. I do think that's better care. I do think that as oncology care becomes complex, it's helpful to facilitate evidence-based guidance to clinicians. I think it's high value. As you mentioned, we've published two studies looking at the cost savings of these evidence-based pathways and outcomes in patients. So I think that's tremendously important, but I will say recognize not all pathways systems are the same. In U.S. oncology and Texas oncology, we have a very sophisticated pathways platform where it's an iterative process of pharmacists and doctors, and we meet regularly to discuss new evidence, the incremental cost effectiveness of new therapies. We make decisions where we vote, we get feedback iteratively from all the doctors in the network, and then we implement change. We curate it. It's in collaboration with the NCCN. So I will say it is complex. I think that with the increasing interest in pathways, I have heard some clinicians say, oh, that's easy. I'm just going to write those pathways overnight. And I will say that it's an investment of time every day to curate and make current a pathway system. But I do think it's incredibly important for patient care. Well, Dr. Pat, I heard you say once in an interview that being an oncologist these days is like living in the era of penicillin discovery. I mean, there's so many innovations happening in the field right now. And 
Biopharmaceuticals for the treatment of cancer are one of them. Biopharmaceuticals are complex medicines made from living cells or organisms, often produced using cutting edge biotechnological methods. And they're recommended for treating underlying cancer and as supportive care for management of the treatment of side effects. And given the high cost of cancer care and the need to balance healthcare provision and associated budgets and patient access and value. This is a great subject of discussion and debate right now. And as the cost of biologics are quite high, the use of biosimilars offer the potential of greater choice and value, increased patient access to treatment and potential for improved outcomes. And a recent study estimated that biosimilars can reduce direct spending on biologic drugs by $54 billion. I wanted to ask you, what role do biosimilars play in value-based oncology care? They play a tremendous role in value-based oncology care. Where we have biosimilars that are available, it is our preference to use them. And where we have biosimilars available today in therapeutics, we are at greater than 90% compliance with biosimilars. You might ask why we're not at 100% compliance. And some patients actually are very insistent that they don't get biosimilars, but we do believe that biosimilars are a reasonable alternative to the innovator product. And so we, we promote them in our practice. I will say that Texas Oncology, I think, has done a great job of educating pharmacists and doctors about the role of biosimilars to try to facilitate optimal utilization of biosimilars. And again, where a biosimilar is, is available, we are at over 90% utilization of biosimilars. We are not alone. I've seen other community oncology practices that are also at very high levels of biosimilar utilization, some upwards of 90%. I know that Florida Cancer Specialist also has high biosimilar utilization, which I think is tremendously high value for payers. I will say in contrast to other sites of service, biosimilar utilization is much lower. And this is a challenge because there's not always aligned incentives for the highest value product as innovator products may have rebates as part of their reimbursement package that don't incentivize the use of biosimilars. So I think that it's a challenge when we don't have aligned policy, but we think biosimilars are really important and we're trying to facilitate their use. I think that that should be highly encouraged and have not only encouraged verbally, but have policies that facilitate implementation of optimal use. Dr. Pat, you've mentioned this earlier, and I want to circle back to it. Um, over the past five to 10 years, a number of studies have repeatedly demonstrate how advanced care planning programs can consistently provide high patient and family satisfaction. They reduce hospitalization by nearly 50% and decrease costs in the last year of life by 20 to 25%. And despite the overwhelming amount of documented benefits for caregivers and patients, utilization of ACP and palliative care remains low. For example, the Conversation Project is an organization that provides tools, guidance, and resources for talking with patients and family members about treatment and end-of-life wishes. And they found that despite 92% of Americans saying that it was important to discuss their wishes for end-of-life care, only 32% of those actually had those conversations. And recently, a JAMA Oncology study showed how incorporating lay health workers into cancer care increases goals of care documentation and patient satisfaction and reduces healthcare costs and costs at the end of life. Can you speak more about how advanced care planning helps prevent ineffective interventions near the end of life and the role it plays in human-centered care delivery and value-based oncology? I think that advanced care planning is incredibly important. We need to do more of it. I think that Texas Oncology is an organization has taken several steps to try to improve upon advanced care planning is really, it makes sense for most cancer patients. Um, it's something that everyone who has a cancer should be discussing in one way or another, not because every patient is terminal, but it is a serious illness. So we've done this in many ways. Obviously all patients on the oncology care model have a query about advanced directive to physicians and to medical power of attorney for healthcare. But also we, for our advanced cancer patients, implement a program called My Choices, My Wishes, where patients undergo a values assessment with their caregiver so they can talk about their life and what it is that they value and what it is that it's important for them to preserve 
Then we bring in things like advanced care planning and a medical power of attorney, advanced directive to physicians, so they can take that all into context of the goals that they have identified. That way we can respect patients' wishes where they are. We've also implemented serious illness conversations as education for our clinicians. I think that's really important. It's best when these discussions are with doctors and patients and their caregivers, but that's not always the case. Time is often limited in a visit. We're not reimbursed well to have these long and lengthy conversations. They're difficult conversations to have. So giving doctors tools to be better communicators, I think is really important. So I think serious illness conversations is one way to do that. And I think for some practices that have not done this well, there are ways that they can outsource it. There are organizations like Iris Healthcare Plans is one that does support for advanced care planning when a practice may not be able to do that. So I think there are many possible solutions, but it remains critical. We wanna make sure that patients get the right care on their terms at the right time and not have unnecessary medical interventions that don't make sense, that end up increasing costs and decreasing their quality of life. Dr. Pat, on the race to value, we spent a lot of time discussing how we can best chart a path to health equity in our country. And I know this is a, a topic that's very important to you, and it's a prime focus for oncology groups looking to deliver higher value care. And this issue of disparities in cancer, it's multifactorial. It can cover not only race, but ethnic, cultural issues, and also gender identification. And if one was to identify one main recognizable barrier that creates health inequities, it would be social determinants of health in that they limit access to care and testing. And last fall, a damning report came out from the American Association for Cancer Research that stated that 34% of all deaths from cancer in those aged 25 to 74 could be prevented by 2035 if disparities in access to care were eliminated. And from 2003 to 2006, disparities cost a nation $230 billion in direct medical cost and indirect cost to society were more than $1 trillion. So Dr. Pat, what do you think can be done to improve equity in oncology care? And are you optimistic that we can eventually attain parity in outcomes as industry moves towards value-based models focused on population health? There are tremendous inequities and disparities in cancer care that are many challenges. I will say, I think to your point, racial, ethnic, gender identification are all barriers to appropriate care. But the socioeconomic piece, I think, hits me hardest. Obviously, I'm biased by the fact that I'm a practitioner in Texas. And in Texas, where we have 30 million Texans, we have about 5 million Texans that are uninsured. And it's mostly adults. So it's mostly adults from 18 to 65, so before Medicare age. And it's around a quarter of that patient population. So those patients, when they get cancer, they frequently aren't screened. So they're six times more likely to present with advanced cancer in comparison to their commercially insured counterparts. And they live about a third as long whenever they are diagnosed with cancer. So Eric, to your point, their outcomes are unfavorable. I'm going to channel Ben Franklin here that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. In my opinion, preventative and primary care services should be more widely available to the general public. My best opportunity to cure cancer is when it's diagnosed early. And so I would love to see patients like my new 40 year old with locally advanced breast cancer, having had cancer screening or early access to services before it becomes an emergency that now I'm trying to fight off the cancer's ability to kill her. So I think really we need to ask some important societal questions about how we can provide some basic preventative services. I think, you know, particularly in conservative states um, like Texas, it becomes a very political issue, um, which is challenging, but sort of wearing my cancer care hat, I think that I'd have a lot easier time curing cancer if patients had access to primary and preventative services because then they would diagnose it early. So in my opinion, there are some policy solutions that would make that more readily available. 
I think that there are some real low cost alternatives that some counties have implemented, for example, in federally qualified health centers that do a great job of providing primary and preventative care to patients with limited resources. And they do a, a very good job at what they do. So I think there are solutions that are out there, but frequently what is in the best health of the country isn't always in bipartisan agreement. So I hope that we come up with better solutions. I am optimistic. I touch the policy world frequently and have been very active in that in Texas. And I will say that even in this 87th legislative session in Texas, which has been highly controversial, I will say that across the aisle, we see that there are individuals that want better access for patients to receive care. There are different approaches about whether that's comprehensive services that are provided by government or the availability of highly competitive, lower cost alternative insurance products. But there is bipartisan agreement that this lack of access in the uninsured is a tremendous problem, and we need to get on board to get closer together with better solutions. Dr. Pat, I thought a great way to wrap up our conversation today would be to talk about how the COVID-19 pandemic has greatly altered the landscape, making it difficult, if not impossible, for practices to predict and control what happens to their patients. And the current impact of the pandemic on cancer care in the United States has resulted in decreases in delays in identifying new cancers and the delivery of treatment. And these problems, if unmitigated, will increase cancer morbidity and mortality for years to come. A recent survey of cancer patients and survivors verifies that 51% of all respondents reported some impact on their care due to the virus. Of those whose care was affected, nearly one in four reported a delay in care or treatment. The trend in delayed screenings and treatment is really alarming because it comes at a time when acceleration and medical advancements have made the ability to detect and treat cancer better. And these breakthroughs we've talked about in genomic testing and therapeutic technologies have opened up exciting avenues for individualized care. Can you discuss the impact of COVID-19 on cancer care and how the oncology community will look post-pandemic? Will we see a return to pre-pandemic screening levels and an expansion of precision medicine innovations to offer a more targeted approach for identifying and responding to disease? Well, Dan, the COVID pandemic has hit cancer practices very hard. As you can imagine, we see the country's most vulnerable patients in our, in our cancer centers as they're frequently immunocompromised. And so we've had to be particularly careful. Texas Oncology had to do a lot in our medical offices in changing screening procedures, social distancing protocols, mandatory mask usage, vaccinations, standards of safety and sanitization. Our patients have frequently not brought caregivers in because of our social distancing requirements. So it's been a challenging time. But also the pandemic, as you mentioned, has seen a decrease in cancer screenings, cancer biopsies, cancer surgeries. The natural consequence of this delayed diagnosis, as you can imagine, will be a stage migration and patients presenting with more advanced cancer. And we see that today. Even this week, I saw several patients who had a delayed and more advanced cancer diagnosis because they delayed their screening procedures during the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. It's my opinion that in the beginning of the pandemic, especially among American seniors, which myself and Dr. Lucio Gordon from Florida Cancer Specialists and COA and Avalier Health published in the Journal of Clinical Oncology, Clinical Cancer Informatics earlier this year, looking at delays in cancer screenings at the beginning of the pandemic, which were substantial across the board, we are seeing these delays. And it's my perception at the beginning, this was largely out of fear. People were scared to go to healthcare locations like clinics, like hospitals. But now I think it's a different problem. I suspect that now uh, in 2021, that it's less about fear as people can be vaccinated, they can wear masks, and it's more about a decreased capacity as we many clinics are social distancing, there are delays in getting appropriate procedures and also competing priorities among individuals that have had deferred maintenance in their life on many levels, whether your child has special needs with their education or you haven't gotten a haircut or it's been a year and a half since you've been to the dentist, there's a lot of deferred maintenance in most people's lives. 
And so screening, I think, continues to fall to back burner. We've worked with prominent COA, the Community Oncology Alliance has worked with prominent cancer organizations to try to heighten awareness for screening because screening saves lives. And this is how we diagnose cancer when it's most curable is through screening modalities. So I think that there is hope that things will improve. They haven't improved yet. I would say our screening rates now are still below what they were in 2019. So if you can think of it differently, probably more than a third of patients that would have a diagnosed cancer failed to identify their cancer in the last year and a half. And in order for us to identify those patients' cancer and continue to identify the new cancers that are occurring, our rates of screening and diagnosis are going to have to go up by more than 30% for a year and a half. So I suspect that when the pandemic finally passes, God willing, (laughs) that we will see an increase in utilization of screening and biopsies and surgeries and cancer treatments, but also we'll see a stage migration. And I suspect that cancer mortality will be increased for more than a decade as a natural consequence of these delays that we've observed in the last year and a half. During that time, innovation continues to improve. Our understanding of molecular medicine and targeted therapies that benefit individualized patients has improved. So cancer care is here to support patients, but they have to present for treatment. I think efforts like the screening efforts, uh, the public service announcements to promote cancer screening are doing a great job at trying to incentivize patients to screen. It's time to screen is one initiative that the Community Oncology Alliance has taken a part in to try to let people know where they can get access to cancer screening. But these efforts are really important. People need to take their health care and make it center stage again. And part of that is really good cancer screening. Dr. Deborah Pat, Texas Oncology, thank you so much for joining us this week in the Race to Value. Our listeners are in for a treat. I know I personally learned so much. And again, it's been a privilege to spend time with you today to better understand the great work that you're doing. Thank you. Thank you, Dan and Eric, for having me. I appreciate y'all. Yeah, thank you so much.